Well, hello, my loves. How are you? It's beautiful to be with you again on another Sunday as episode seven of Life Seen Through a Sister's Eye podcast drops. We're continuing the discussion of black bougie questioning capitalism with two questions in mind. What does it mean to be African in the 21st century? And what is the meaning of success? Joining me today is a highly regarded a lecturer, a highly regarded teacher of African design principles and practice, Saki Mafundikwa, who we all lovingly call Mwalimu. Mwalimu is the name that we give to teachers. Saki, uh, Mwalimu Saki Mafundikwa is someone I came across during my phase of watching TED Talks like it was a religion. And I was absolutely blown away at the information that he shared around African alphabets. Uh, He has a book out called African Alphabets, and we will be talking about this quite in depth during this um, series. It'll be three of them podcasts this week and the next two weeks as well. We'll be hearing and just focusing mostly on what Mwalimu has to say to us about uh, the connection between his thesis and research into African alphabets, African writing systems, and his then understanding, his growing understanding of what it meant to be African in the 21st century and what success means. Um, I don't want to say too much because it will take away from the substance of the juiciness that is coming your way. (laughs) So I'll leave it there, but I love having you here and I hope you're enjoying the journey so far. Uh, subscribe, share with your friends, um, connect with me, um, shoot me a DM. I always love hearing from you. Are you ready? All right, get comfy. It's story time. It was written. It was written. You know, we were never taught about ourselves. No. We're just taught about the worldview of the British, the European worldview, the the imperial, the imperialist worldview, that was what we were taught. So for, for, for me, let me just say this, yeah. having said that, for me, the discovery of writing systems mm. that were in, in, invented by Africans, I can't even begin to tell you how huge that was, because the narrative was of a dark continent, Africa, the dark continent. And when I checked it out, I discovered that that duck referred to the fact that we didn't have writing. So when I discovered that there were, there was actually writing in Africa, which wasn't even, some of the scripts were not even influenced by, it wasn't a reaction to the Roman alphabet. Ah, that just blew my mind. The conversation I conversation inviting us into inviting us into inviting us into inviting us into one about one about one about there's one thing you said in there that really popped in there like black people is this the same is this the same it's the same one isn't it it's the same one isn't it it's the same one isn't it you know what another thing the whole album is right the whole album is right Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. That's the one that popped. That's the one that popped. That's the one that put in a position to keep black people in a position. Which, for me, for me, I mean, that hits home so hard. I think you take it. I think you take it. Well, I mean, look, well, well, I mean, look, well, I mean, look, well, I mean, look, well, I mean, look, well.
It was written for his family. It wasn't written for a public address or anything. It's very short. He said, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children, and you notice he shifts from his sons to children. So he's bringing women in to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. Now that's the upward climb for him. Not so they'll get rich, or they'll get powerful, or they'll be celebrities. It's the rise of the cultivated, civilized civilization And it all comes out of what you do at the beginning, building this foundation, creating this And you're listening to Life Seen Through a Sister's Eye podcast, produced on the beautiful and black sovereign countries of the Eastern Kulin in a place labeled Southeast Australia. I am a guest here. I am Karang Achihera from a place labeled Southeast Africa or Zimbabwe. And you? Are you ready to reclaim, redefine, and replenish your imagination, your ideas of who you are, what you are, and what you're made of? Are you ready to snatch back control over your imagination from the visions we never explicitly consented to carry forward, but which we nonetheless find ourselves unconsciously tending to as we go along with the crowd? Then, dear Rebel, you're listening to the right podcast. I'll be your guide and mostly your companion on this journey as we reclaim our imagination and deeply root our lives in ways of being that uplift both our own and collective liberation. We'll travel to the beat of a dream-enhancing soundscape that is lovingly curated with bursts of poetry, short stories, sound art, and chats with the guests who will join us during our quest. More than just listening to what we have to say and the soundtrack to our road trip, as you chill in the back of the tour bus, I'm extending an invitation for you to listen in with explicit intention to get curious about your own inner world. If it feels good, I invite you to make yourself a nice cup of tea, light a candle, burn some incense, perhaps grab a cozy blanket and few cushions, get comfy, it's story time, mine and yours, ours. You may wish to pull out a pen or better yet, to keep a journal where you can doodle, collage, draw and take notes of memorable moments as we make our way across this soundscape. On a quest for stories, I create new and clear visions, new directions. We'll touch base with Black African creatives, creators whose imaginations are tapped into practices of living on their own terms, including living beyond the imposed group identity of Black and African and success and we'll focus on two questions what does success mean and what does it mean to be african in the 21st century are you ready all right get comfy 
It's story time. It was written. So I just want to start by saying thank you so much for making time to join in this conversation. We've had like a couple of, you know, sort of like prelude conversations around the topic because it's quite a involved project. But I think before we dive into that, what's really beautiful is for people just to get to know you because this conversation series is about me reaching out to people who have had an influence on me on my thinking and really shaped me on my journey into her reclaiming that African identity, whatever that is for each person. Cause I think it's a very individual journey and we get to know ourselves by getting to know other people better, right. you know? So it's like that whole interconnectedness of all life. I am because we are, you know, Ubuntu. Ubuntu and Uno, <laughs> my art, whatever we want to yeah. call it, you know, the name that we want to put on it, it's, it's part of our tradition going back thousands of years in our philosophies as right. Africans. So um, firstly, thank you so much. I also want to start by honoring, before actually, before I can even start, I have to do the right thing here. Uh, I'm recording this on the stolen lands of the Kulin nations in a place called Australia. I live on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong peoples. And um, so I want to just pay my respects to those elders because I am held very well and taken care of very well on this land. And so I just wanted to honor them. I'm not sure if you know the, uh, the, uh, the indigenous peoples of the lands where you are right now, Mwalimu. Yes, um, this is the indigenous, this is the land of the Duwamish uh, indigenous people. This place is called Seattle, but actually named after the chief, but actually that's why people talk. It's not Seattle. They could not pronounce it. it it's, um, it's a very different sound. So they called it Seattle. I think you are familiar with that in Zimbabwe. Places like Gueru were called Guelo. So it, it happened all over the world. So I honor the indigenous people of this land, this stolen land, to be uh, precise. So let's give thanks that uh, all the ancestors have come together and made all of this possible because without their foresight, we wouldn't be here. Um, And so let's start (laughs) playing our small part by having this conversation. Right. Um, So we're both from Zimbabwe, but I I don't want to talk about me right now. I want to talk about you. Can you tell me who exactly is uh, Mwalimu? I call you Mwalimu, meaning teacher. Saki Mafundikwa. Um, I can give people a little bit of an insight in that, uh, or an entryway. I encountered your work um, as part of a TED talk you gave on African alphabets. And I was blown away because one, you had dreadlocks, and I didn't know anybody <laughs> in your generation who was rocking locks coming out of Yale and spouting the kind of wisdom that I was looking for as somebody who was also educated in an elite university system, but bucking and kind of rebelling against that knowledge and value system. So how maybe you can kind of give us 
a journey that led to African alphabets and, and give us an idea of who you are through that, through that lens, if that suits you, if that's yeah. you. Yeah, I was born in the then Rhodesia, which is the colonial name for Zimbabwe, and uh, did all my sort of like primary and secondary school there. Then I left for the U.S., not uh, by way of Harare Airport, but by other means, because I received my uh, conscription papers and uh, I decided that I wasn't going to fight for the oppressor. So I left the country, ended up in Botswana, with the aim actually of going to Mozambique. My kid brother had joined uh, the revolution, the guerrillas. That was also part of the reason why I couldn't join the settler army because I asked myself this question that like if I say I joined and I came face to face with my brother in the bush who was trying to liberate me, would I have shot him? And the answer was an equivocal no. So I decided I wasn't going to do that. If anything, I was going to go and join him. So I left and um, ended up in Botswana and I spent a year in Botswana. I articulated my intention to the Botswana authorities that I wanted to go to Mozambique, as did other young uh, Zimbabweans who ended up over there in refugee camps. And uh, word was sent to Maputo, but Maputo responded that uh, they were totally overwhelmed by uh, the numbers and couldn't feed people or clothe them. And they say anybody who has some education and the potential for continuing their education, they should go to school. So that became the thing. So I ended up getting a scholarship to study in America. It was a scholarship fund meant specifically for Africans and indigenous peoples in America. And actually it's the scholarship fund that Kwame Nkrumah, that brought Kwame Nkrumah to the US and that's what he studied under. So, so from Rhodesia to Botswana to, and being a refugee to the US in like uh, about a year and a few months time. That was pretty, well, pretty amazing, I, I can say, because America was like a culture shock, you know, but I took it all in stride, decided to study fine arts because I was a, a talented kid. Uh, from when I was little, I started drawing when I was maybe three, four. I was drawing on the ground and my my parents, especially my father, who was a school teacher, realized that uh, I had a special talent. So he encouraged me by buying me drawing books and crayons and eventually watercolors. And as you know, during that time, uh, during the colonial era, Art wasn't taught as a subject to African kids. So pretty much I can't say I, I started art in school until I got to America, really. I was self-taught. When I started school, I think about age 10, my father started giving me his, um, his charts, you know, learning aids teaching aids for nature study, for geography, history. You know, I would draw a map of the world and label it. And I discovered that I enjoyed the labeling much more than the drawing. So I was fascinated by uh, letters from quite an early age. And there were a lot of books and magazines at home. And so instead of doodling little people, I doodled letters. Whenever I found a piece of paper and a pen, I would just doodle letters because I thought that letters were created by hand, that books 
printed books that I saw, all that was done by hand. I was like, oh my God, I want to be as good as these people who do this. I hadn't heard about printing presses <laughs> at that point. So my journey was kind of interesting because I didn't have a portfolio. And yet I, I wanted to join the graphic design department, which I, I didn't know that what I was doing was graphic design. Um, a fellow student and fellow, uh, we, we shared the same dormitory. He was in the graphic design department. Jimmy was from Nigeria. So he was like, man, you, how come I never see you in the department? You know, I'm like, department? <laughs> He's like, graphic design. I'm like, uh what are you talking about? He's like, no, man, come on. Because I was doing all the flyers and the dormitory. Anything that needed to be said, people just come to me and I'll quickly do it. I said, but you do design. So you're a graphic designer. I was like, really? So he introduced me to the design department. And these two professors were like, um, where's your portfolio? I was like, uh, portfolio? They're like, yeah, your work, work that you've done. It's like, well, I don't have anything, you know, I don't have a, I don't have that. So they were intrigued. They were like, tell us about your family. How did you grow up? What did your father do? I said, my father was a teacher. They were like, and what else? I was like, oh, come to think of it. He was also a carpenter. He was also a builder. Like he built the house that we lived in and made the, the, the furniture. And they were like, did you help him? I said, yeah. I, I, I was his favorite, like, tool boy you know he took me along on all the projects um, and um, my job I never really learned how to saw or to plane my job was to finish so if he's done with the table I would get the sandpaper and I would sand it down and my dad would just come and kind of look at, a, at an angle and say you missed the spot there I'm like, how did you see that? So my father taught me how to see now that's big in design the ability to see, attention to detail, basically. And we graphic designers are known to be quite anal about our attention to detail. So it was that, like I learned by osmosis, you know, he never told me, he'll just say, you missed this part. And then I would vanish it down. And um, that's as far as my carpentry went. I was the finisher. So they were like, wow, what about your mom? I said, oh, my mother was just a housewife. They were like, okay, what else did she do during her spare time when she wasn't playing housewife? I said, oh, my mom was always knitting. She was always sewing. She was always crocheting. In fact, every doily, every tablecloth, every bedspread in the house was made by my mother. And I used to uh, draw, if it's flowers, that she wanted to embroider or a village scene. And the other women, she was a member of the women's club. And the other women saw that they were like, oh, who, who does this for you? And she was like, my son. And so all these women were bringing their stuff to me. And just like at school with my dad at home, I was drawing for these women. So these guys looked at each other, the, uh, these two professors, and they were like, oh my God, you grew up in a house full of design. I was like, I did? They were like, yeah, everything that you say here, your parents were designers. Wow. It was one of those eureka moments, you know? So they kind of liked me and they said, okay, we'll take you on for a, for a, for a semester. We'll see how well you do. Well, I did so well. I was, I guess, like top of the class or something. And um, that was it. I discovered what my life's path was. I discovered that what I had been doing all my life was actually graphic design with a special interest in typography. So this was at Indiana University in 1980. I'd gone to the States in 79. So 
I was on fire. I mean, like, there's nothing. I can't even begin to tell you the joy of discovering your purpose. The thing that really makes you, just makes you, makes you, you know, that excites you. So after Indiana University, at the end of Indiana, my, ther- uh, my, my professors were like, well, apply to Yale. At that point, Yale University MFA program was one of the top in the world. And teaching there were the, you know, legends, you know, Paul Rand, uh, Bradbury Thompson, the Swiss School, Armin Hoffman, Wolfgang, Wolfgang Weingart. Anyway, all these um, modernists, it was a very modernist program. And I was like, are you kidding me? Apply to Yale? Because, you know, this was Ivy League they were talking about. And I was like, how would I ever afford a year in Ivy League education? So I'm like, no, 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 just apply, just apply. We went to Yale without money, so you apply also. So I did apply very, very kind of like um, half-heartedly because I was like, eh, waste of time. Oh, I was shocked. I made the first cut. They invited me for, for, for an interview. And what happened at that interview was the birth of African alphabets. So I was interviewed by Alvin Eisenman, who was the um, head of department, the chair of the graphic design, MFA in graphic design program. So when I walked in, he said, where are you from? I said, Zimbabwe. Wow, what language do you guys speak over there? I said, Shona. And he said, is it written? And then I looked at him like, uh, where is this going? Of course it's written. So he was like, what are the characters like? And I'm like, characters? Roman alphabet. And he couldn't hide his uh, disappointment. He was like, oh man, I've heard that there are some African societies that invented their own writing systems. I was like, really? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually a professor here, Robert Faris Thompson, who's into all that stuff. It's like, hmm, okay. And I made a mental note. This is what I call awareness. When something comes your way and you are aware that this is big and could transform, transform your life. That's exactly how I felt in that moment. And I was like, if ever I get in, that's going to be my thesis. Well, I did get in and it was my thesis. That research took me to the museums in Europe. I wrote to the uh, to Pitts, Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. Any place that I felt could have some sort of like history on the writing systems of Africa. I went to the uh, British Museum, National History, I think it's called something. The Museum Volker Kunde in, uh, in, in Berlin. I went to Paris doing research and um, Alvin was just blown away. He was incredibly excited. He was like, you have to publish this. I was like, uh, no, I want to do research in Africa first because this is just a synopsis. I want to go to Africa where these writing systems come from and do research on them. So that's how African alphabet <laughs> was born or were born. Why did you decide that it was important to go to Africa to do that research? instead of just you know just you've done the research in europe now you can yeah, yeah, yeah. the book what, because what? Uh, because um i just felt like africa would provide me with the authentic story you know uh the books that i had uh, that i'd done my research were all written by europeans and mostly anthropologists who included them in their books not because they 
they uh, attached some value to them, but it was like some curiosity, you know, like, oh, and by the way, these people had devised some writing, you know. I wanted the story from the inventors themselves. So where where do we find these writing systems? They're, they're, they're all over Africa, actually. Even Zimbabwe does have them. But the thing is, you have to sort of understand the meaning of the word writing. Okay. Okay. If somebody, the earliest writing systems were pictures, okay, and that's what we have in Zimbabwe. We have the cave, the the sun people who were the original people in Southern Africa left an amazing history of their writing system. That's true. Which were pictures drawn on caves, not using paint, you know, European paint, but they knew the plants whose flowers and whose roots and whose bark created pigment. And to show you that these pigments were not no Mickey Mouse pigments, they have lasted over thousands of years in Zimbabwe, going back, I think, like 5,000 years. So that kind of coincides with some of the um, the largest, larger or the more well-known civilizations that we're taught yes. about in African history. Right. Depending on which dating system you're using, of course. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And I, I, I get lost in dates. So Me I, too. I, usually, I try to stay away. I, yeah, I, I stay away. I just know it's ancient, you know. I'm very particular about that because I don't want to trip myself giving the wrong information yeah. about dates, right? Let it suffice that if they say they are as old as 5,000 years, that's pretty old. That is pretty old. That's really old. So the sand, because this is a conversation that I started having with a um, some of the Khoisan in South Africa last year when I was there. Yes. I met some Khoisan mm. in Bloemfontein, some who are based in Cape Town. Yes one who regularly travels to Zim and Namibia. Mm -hmm. And that started really opening up because my mind wasn't really opened up to that history through my education, my formal education. Well, I don't think there was any formal education that went into that at all. In fact, if anything, the biggest insult of a people is the Europeans calling the sand Bushmen. That's the worst insult because it denotes ignorance. It denotes lack of quote-unquote civilization, yeah. you know? So I always make it uh, a point to correct that terminology that is really, in a way, it's cruel, it's hurtful, yeah. you know, to call, to call someone a bushman, whether it's a woman or a child. So it's almost that idea that they have here in Australia as well, that all Aboriginal people were merely hunter gatherers. <laughs> they didn't right. have complex systems of organization, didn't understand right. plant systems, you know, cause I mean, to be able to um, know which plants, which roots, which barks, where to paint and what exactly were they saying? And the, um, the aborigines also had a writing system. Those were the dreamings that they drew in the sand. It was a very complex writing system. And uh, because Europeans didn't understand them, you know, same story. The aborigines were characterized as um, savage, 
and their land uh, stolen and everything, any of their achievements and all their achievements were belittled, you know, even in a more cruel way um, than in other places. So yeah. that story kind of went around the world, basically, wherever Europeans set foot, you know, you know what they did here in America, yeah. which led um, the Indians to say, white man speaks with forked tongue because each and every treaty that was made between the indigenous peoples and the American government was broken by the American government, leading to total genocide of the people. That's, I mean, that's that's huge because we're only here in this space. Indigenous um, people, First Nations, Aboriginal people are, are just starting to enter that treaty process. And it's already quite fraught. Mm-hmm. That emphasis in Zimbabwe that we have on writing and education, I think, and this is just an assumption on my part, and maybe you can elucidate it more because you have more connection with that older generation that had kind of lived through the more immediate consequences of the that first revolution that we went through. Mm. Um, but it's my understanding that that understanding of the forked tongue of the colonizer and how they broke these treaties, was this part of the allure and the seduction towards education? I mean, your father was a teacher, so... How was well, that, that, that was the only kind of profession, really, teaching Madumeni, which were agricultural extension officers, and for women, nursing. Those are kind of like the, the professions that were open and available to Africans during the colonial era. So one didn't become a teacher because uh, they wanted to become a teacher. That was what was available. And it was a way to feed your family. So it was a yes, a very yeah. practical, functional decision. Right. But because, um, you know, when you became a teacher, you were held in high regard in your community, you know, because you were spreading knowledge. And um, there was just something uh, about education that uh, Zimbabweans found um, very alluring, you know. And um, so we even, at Independence, we had the distinction of being uh, the most literate uh, nation at Independence in Africa. So like literate in the Roman alphabet. Yes. Anglo curriculum. Oh, colonial. (laughs) I mean, I'm only just getting my head around that now. Colonial. Yeah, colonial education, you know. We were never taught about ourselves. No. We are just taught about the worldview of the British, the European worldview, the, the imperial, the imperialist worldview. That was what we were taught. So for, for, for me, let me just say this. Yeah. Having said that, for me, the discovery of writing systems that were in, in, invented by Africans, I can't even begin to tell you how huge that was because the narrative was of a dark continent, Africa, the dark continent. And when I checked it out, I discovered that that dark referred to the fact that we didn't have writing. So when I discovered that there were, there was actually writing in Africa, which wasn't even, some of the scripts were not even influenced by, it wasn't a reaction to the Roman alphabet. Ah, that just blew my mind. So basically, when the colonizers came, Africa was a ways ahead, you know, and some of it they saw, but because if you want to subjugate some somebody, 
you do not praise, you do not herald, you do not place value on their achievements. If anything, you break them down. This is savagery, you know, this is hidden. Any and all negatives, negative descriptions were leveled against us to a point where a lot of us believed them. Mm. Which is why when I go to the Great Zimbabwe today, I will hear parents telling their children, oh, no, 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 we didn't build this. Africans could not build this. This was built by Phoenicians or other, whatever, whatever they taught us in school. Because the British colonial system totally refused to credit Africans for building the Great Zimbabwe. Mm. So that's, that's why I... I felt like my book is not complete until I go to Africa. I wanted to hear Africans telling me about their inventions, you know, and I did. For me, meeting King Joya, Sultan Joya of the Bamun people in, in Cameroon, an African king. Wow. I can't even begin to tell you what that felt like, you know. I just, I was welcomed at the palace met him and there was protocol right like don't shake his hand or anything but when it was my turn because there was a group of people so his handlers were like now saki now like it's your turn to go i just went over there i just stretched out my hand you know like my man king <laughs> and he took my hand too you know and we shook hands i was like protocol be damned i gotta feel the hand of a king an African king in Africa with a history, an amazing history. His grandfather had invented the writing system for his people, which is still there today, taught at the palace. Are you kidding? I was meeting history face to face. This was huge. And I knew I was right to insist that the book wasn't going to be published until I did my own personal research in Africa. So that's that's why so you 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 wrote this book african alphabets when was it published um that book came out in 2004 so it took like 18 years <laughs> from when i uh from when i when i graduated from uh grad school to when it was published like 18 years of and what other script do we have there on the cover on the cover we have the bamum this is the bamum up here Mm. The Cameroon one, and this is um, Giz or Ethiopic. Mm. And oh yeah, we're is, familiar uh, with that one because we have quite a few yeah. Ethiopians in Australia. Right, and this is Vai from the from Liberia, and this oh. is Mende from Sierra Leone, and uh, this must be Mende also. So yeah, and I did go to uh, Cameroon. I went to Nigeria. I went to. I wanted to go to Liberia so bad, but there was a war there mm. at that time, 2003, when I was doing my research. So I wasn't able to go. So if Liberia was not safe, Sierra Leone next door wasn't safe either. No, no. And uh, I have finally gone to uh, Ethiopia uh, about uh, a year ago, went to Lalibela, which, which is just like bucket list, you know? Everybody in this earth at some point should go to Ethiopia and go to see the architecture, the wonders of architecture at Lalibela, just incredible. It just, you know, when you talk about blew my mind, yeah, this blew. <laughs> Lalibela is where they've got the, um, the ancient the churches. church, and there's one that's actually built into the rock, but it goes rock. underground. And 
it, it's incredible how they did that, right? So this thing is huge too. It's like about five stories high. Okay? Whoa. And it's all hewn out of one rock and it's in the shape of a cross and each unit has rooms, right? And it's all one rock. It's not like they, they made one piece and then uh, lowered it down. No. Yeah, it's like under the ground. <laughs> and you're like, how, you know? Just the, the wonders of Africa, you know? And when you see things like that, you realize that colonialism did a number on us to really brainwash us into thinking that we're inferior. It just blows your mind, you know? So we just took a short break there just to, to make sure that we were in the right position with the sun and everything. So we were, we'll just pick up from, we're talking about the systematic brainwashing. Well, I call it brainwashing. I'm not sure if that's the term that you use, but that's how I interpreted what you were saying. And I'm well, I, I call it whitewashing. Ah. <laughs> why, why is that? Why, why do you use whitewashing? Well, who brainwashed us? Yeah. You know, that's who brainwashed us. They whitewashed us. They whitewashed. And what I find fascinating, I mean, talking to Tanasha just the other week, because we're pre-recording this one, and then um, speaking to you now, I realize that we were brainwashed, whitewashed, but all of our artifacts exist or live in these archives over in the West. Mm. So the value of those things is actually understood. Mm. Yeah. That's the thing. When it comes to the writing system, why, Mm. I mean, obviously hide that knowledge from the people, take them back centuries in terms of their development, because Mm. they don't, they're now no longer standing on the shoulders of their ancestors and their ancestors' greatness so they can go forward. And this is what your TED talk was really, really taught me to understand as well. Um, well, so- we, go back, we go back to the past in order to go into the future. Because when we go, our, our greatest achievements were made in ancient times, in our past, right? So that's why I invoke people like um, uh, Marcus Garvey, mm. who said that um, a person without a knowledge of their past history like a tree without roots True. so that's profound to me and a lot of people especially the younger ones are not really interested in those things from the past in our past they kind of feel like eh, we are now in a, in, 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 in a different time or modern times so why go back over there but the value of going back there cannot be overemphasized you know it's like that's where in order for you to discover who you are you have to go back to that past it, this is fascinating for me because what i found is that when i have said that and usually to people within your own age they look at me and they say there's nothing there exactly <laughs> Even my grandmothers were like, because our time is over, our era is over. You need to live in the future now, you know. So make sure that you know how to read, make sure that you educate, make sure that you have a degree, make sure that you get a job in the system. But the more, I mean, maybe it's also just because I've grown up in this generation overseas in a generation of people who are disenchanted with their own system that I'm also starting to question that narrative. Yeah, and, and, and the education, I encourage it in the, uh, Western, the Western system of education. I encourage it because it empowers us now to question mm. everything. True. You know, because now we know how to do the research, where to do the research, and to call out where 
we were hoodwinked, you know. Without that education, it's not possible. It's how true. would you How would you know? Yeah. So in, in a way, your grandmothers were right. They were just wrong in emphasizing that and not our ways, you know, our past. That's where the problem comes when we sort of like make this value judgment that, oh, the Western education is better for you and parents, you know, heavily encourage their kids to get that education, but deny them any knowledge of who they are and that's their past. So this is, sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say it's kind of like in Zimbabwe, mm. uh, certain certain parents do not want their kids to speak Shona. Yeah. And there is nothing that just like, like for me that I, I it's self-hate as far as I'm concerned. Mm. How can you refuse? How can you deny your child this richness of your mother tongue? You know, it's you'll, true. Never, you'll never be English, no matter how well you speak it. You we try. We tried. <laughs> I know, I know. In Zoom, when I was running the school, I would get um, somebody would call me on the phone, and I would expect some white kid to walk through the door, but it's a black kid, and um, sounding even more British than the British. <laughs> I work with a lot of, um, I guess, the name, the name that's given to to children who grow outside of their grow up outside of their country, their parents' country of origin is third culture. And I've been communicating to them that you know what, this is a phenomenon that I grew up in, even though I was in Africa. Mm. Because of the school systems that I was educated in, you know, I was sent I was sent to private schools mm. from two, from the age of two, like my kindergarten, I was mostly surrounded by white people, learning a white value system. I would mm. go home and have have my black life. <laughs> at, at, least they let, at least they let you have that black life I have that black life And that's largely because I lived with my grandmother My grandmother lived uh, with us, right? Uh, so I couldn't so I, But so for people who didn't grow up with their grandparents In the house with them, you know It would have just been a pretty, a pretty white existence I know, I know how easy that is How easily that happens And yeah. people are always really shocked and amazed That you can grow up in Africa and not know one work of African literature, one African artist, visual artist, you cannot even understand your own history going back 60 years, 70 years, you don't know anything. And, but it's true. I mean, that's my, that's my experience. And so this reclamation is a journey. It's a self-initiated journey. And, and I kind of feel like what you're offering at Ziva is sort of like that. If you can, yeah. is it, so can you maybe explain to, to, to me like, cause I know it's Zimbabwe Institute of Vigital Art. And so what well, was the inspiration and um, what does that mean about being African in the 21st century, you know, because we've got these, we've got kids, like me, we've got these assimilated African kids. <laughs> well, I, I um, from the point that I discovered um, graphic design, I decided that I wanted to go back home and uh, open a school of design because at that point in time, <clears throat> design was something that wasn't very, people didn't know what design was in Zimbabwe and it wasn't a career choice for, for kids, you know. And so initially I wanted a school just like the schools that I went to in, in America, just a traditional art school. Right, but the tipping point for me was when, uh, after college, I moved to New York, and um, the internet happened. World Wide Web, multimedia, 
all these things happened while I lived in New York. And my God, I was, it was so intoxicating, so seductive to me. I was like, what? This is so cool, you know? That um, the world, it shrunk the world, basically. And I, and the tools changed for making design because I was trained as a traditional designer. By that, I mean the cut and paste, you know? Moving things around physically. Wow. Cutting um, a panel of text and putting it on a mechanical, you know, designing the thing um, by hand. And then all of a sudden, Quark Express happened. And now you're just, (laughs) all you're doing is just moving the, uh, what's that thing? We don't do it anymore. We just use the... The mouse. So now you're grabbing something here with your mouse, putting it here, grabbing another thing, putting it. Voila, you haven't used your hands at all. Mm. I was like, now is the time to go back home with a link, uh, an internet link, satellite link or whatever, and a PC, a, a laptop. I felt like I could teach design anywhere in the world. So the whole thing, the, the technology changed everything from my thinking around the traditional uh, art school, right? It became digital. I saw the possibilities in the digital tools, multimedia. We became, the, there's an old saying, an English saying, a jack of all trades and a master of none, right? But we became jacks of all trades and master of all of them. That's multimedia. That's really multimedia. And I was like, I want this for Zimbabwe. So I was playing around with, uh, with, the, with the name. So I created an, an acronym, Zimbabwe Institute of Visual Arts, Ziva. I was like, cool, I like the Ziva part, but I don't like the visual part because that's just like your traditional school. I wanted a word that would encapsulate the digital tools so that you just know that this is about digital. So when I'm, when I'm like um, ideating on an idea or a concept, right? I sleep it, I eat it, <laughs> I dream it. <laughs> There's no other way. <laughs> <laughs> so it consumes me. Yeah. And one day I was getting into the subway. I lived in Brooklyn in Clinton Hill. I'm getting into the subway and it hit me, digital. I was like, what? Digital? I saw visual and digital come together and morph and digital. I was like, that's it. That's it. Because it's visual, it's still visual arts, but now we're using digital tools. That's how that came about. And today that's like really, that's like the brand. Digital is even bigger than Ziva in the scheme of things, because this is where we are. Look at this now, education has gone digital. It definitely has. And I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, people wouldn't know, people who are watching don't really know, but Non Sikelelo Mtiti is one of the graduates from Ziva, and she co-founded Reading Zimbabwe with Tinashem Shakavan. So a lot of the visuals that we're seeing through them is actually coming through your your institution that you created in Zim. Yes, you could say that. You could say that. (laughs) (laughs) You could. I I wouldn't argue with it. You wouldn't argue with it. (laughs) Okay, cool, cool. (laughs) 
Um, so, so what is this, when I think about like what it means to be African in the 21st century and the importance of going back and reclaiming, because we've got like this technology that's coming in. And I think one of the great insights that I had after following, you know, watching your TED talk and then following the link is realizing that the binary code system is embedded within the way that African people think and design. Absolutely. So it's it, it's not really a break or it's not really like something innovative and new that's just been imposed on a culture. It's always been there. But now it's a question of when we receive this technology that has been, you know, the software, whatever that's been created over here and we, we bring it into our space. How how does your even your own approach to um rethinking or into creating African alphabets, your book, African alphabets, you know, going back to the source, actually touching it. Like, how do you incorporate, what is Zimbabwean design? Like what's, how do you, how do you bring Zimbabwean design into the 21st century? Okay. Well, it's uh, Zimbabwe. Actually, if you think about it, is um, way, way ahead of even the 21st century. I like all you, all you got, all you got it. Because I didn't like my do. question when I asked. I was like, what a colonial question! I'm so glad no, you put that in there's nothing, there's nothing colonial about it, because when you go to the Great Zimbabwe, that structure, it still befuddles the mind. What kind of brain thought that up? And what I find even more sort of like intriguing is the fact that it took about three centuries to complete. So, okay, today, an architect, a designer will draw and render on the computer the building or the structure so that even if they die, the the dream will continue, the, the building will be completed because you have the blueprint. So who are these people <laughs> who do not have who did not draw in this in the way that we think, but somebody had a division, right, for that structure. And it took three three hundred years to complete. How did the people who came after this person know how to stay true to the integrity of the original design? That's why I say we are way beyond the 21st century. So how do they do it, Sagi? Please, you can't ask the question and they're not answering. <laughs> I'm still I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, that's why that's why I love going there because every time I go there, I see something, something, something new. On a visit there in 2012, I went with a friend of mine. Uh, she's Nigerian, but uh, uh, grew up in London. A very prolific artist. Her name is uh, Ima Abasi Okon. And every friend who visits me, I take them to the Great Zimbabwe to a point where the people there used to think that I have a, uh, a touring company. <laughs> I say, <laughs> Rasta, but we are putting on one, you know, you brought out the people, you know. <laughs> but, um, and so we are right up the Acropolis, and I hate this word, Acropolis. Come on, mm-hmm. couldn't we, couldn't, that's, that's from the British, they call it the Acropolis. So we're up there on the hill complex, and uh, we're looking, we just took a breather, breather, you know, so we're looking at this wall, and Imo was like, oh my God, 
see this little kind of like um, there were uh, gaps because this is not like machine made uh, granite blocks, right? These are very organic. Some are straight, some are not, you know? So they would leave gaps like this and then they would find little pieces that they just push in there. Are you kidding me? That a kind of attention to detail. And this was done by savages. I mean, that place blows my mind. And I think the answer to who we are is encoded in that structure. We have to break the code. But for me, like the uh, great enclosure, I love that image with the, um, with the door kind of, that's like this. That's the portal. I call it the portal. So if I want to go back to the past, I have to go through the portal, right? And that's kind of like our African history is like that. What I call the greatest, our greatest achievements, they are all in our past. So you find your own portal. Mine is a great Zimbabwe. And if you're in Ghana, you have a portal, your portal. If you're in Sudan, you have these uh, amazing um, pyramids. And that whole thing of building with uh, stone, right? Starts right from the north, from Egypt through Nubia, right down to, to Southern Africa. So something is happening there, something happened there. It's like the movement of people with their skills in, in masonry. So Africa, may, I mean, we can talk about Africa until the cows come, mm -hmm. come back, come home. <laughs> it's just like, it's... It's, it's certainly... Uh... We, it's an, un, I, I mean, I think of it as like an unparalleled legacy. It's probably paralleled something, but for me, when I, when I really sit with just the legacy that we've inherited, um, I am amazed. And to then know and accept that that is within my lineage, I think yeah. is another layer of... Right. Um, because I mean, even like now science is even just starting to understand that each person in existence is the product of um, the very best of the generations that came before, you know, your DNA. Mm. So that is actually encoded within us. Well, let me just say this. Yeah. Um, when I show, when I lecture, right? Uh, I always open with that image of the great enclosure and the portal because I'm paying homage to the ancestors, right? And I always say the, the, the following slide is those stone sculpture, sculptures. These really amazing, just like these guys, these characters. And I always say that... First of all, Zimbabwe house is made of stone, right? And then we end up being maybe the world's top stone sculptors. I don't think that's by accident. I really think that stone 
working in stone is really encoded in our DNA. We can't help it. It just comes naturally to us. Even the name of the country, <laughs> ours is made of stone, you know. Are you ready? All right, get comfy. It's story time. It was written. It was written. Thank you for joining us for episode seven in season one, take two of Life Seen Through a Sister's Eye podcast. We've been having a beautiful chat, the first of three with Mwali Musaki Mafundikwa. Please do check out um, his TED talk called African Alphabet so you can find out more about the phenomenal work that he had been doing for so many years. Um, Zimbabwe Institute of Digital Art recently closed down and Saki is on his way back to the United States after spending quite a bit of time in Zimbabwe. Um, you know, pandemic does what pandemics do, hey, which is unfortunate, but I will keep you posted on his whereabouts and how you can support him in his future ventures because, you know, someone this passionate, um, clearly the the mission is never over, you know. Um, I didn't write you all, I didn't write myself a letter for this episode, if you notice, and that's on purpose because... I'm done writing letters for right now. I don't have much to say, so why force it? And we'll be back next week. Please do subscribe, share, uh, leave a review. Um, I'm streaming on Spotify and on Apple, a few other places as well if you find me there. But those are the two main spots. And let me know what you think of each and every episode and how this journey is unfolding for you. Is anything coming up? Would you like to have a chat with me? You know, you can always hit me up. Hit me up in the inbox. We can do a 90-minute one-to-one session if you just need somebody to hold space while you unpack some of the stuff that's coming up for you as you're beginning to interrogate and explore and get curious about your definition of success, your definitions of what it means to be African in the 21st century. And of course, like while this podcast is very Black-centered and very African-centered, I have designed it so everyone can participate in the dialogue because nothing shifts unless we all shift. You know, we all have to do the work together and we have to come from or enter, like Saki was saying, the portal, your own portal, you have to find your own way in and this is my way in and I'm sharing it with you. My way in is through an African consciousness and a black consciousness. So yeah, it's, um, it's a joy to share. And to finally be at the stage where I, I am ready to share and I'm able to share with you. Um, it, this is deep work. This is deep work. And it takes time and it requires support. It requires community. So do reach out if you feel the need and gather your beloveds and do the work together. That's also a beautiful thing. And then hit me up. We'll have chats. I love that too. My contact details can be found on my social media at Sister Zai. I have a contact form on my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find me on Linktree. Sister Zai is spelled S-I-S-T-A-Z-A-I. S-I-S-T-A-Z-A-I. I'll see you all soon next week for part two with Mwale Musaki Mafundikwa.